The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And what better time to talk about a book about a dead journalist? This is the second episode of the Reading in the Time of Monsters podcast. I'm your host, Peter. And today we will be discussing the book Savage Journey. Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo by Peter Richardson, published last year, 2022. Before we get to the book, though, I would like to introduce what I think will be a regular feature of this podcast, which will be self-criticism. I think that if one is to be a critic, one should also criticize oneself, should use those same tools to improve one's own self and the contributions that one adds to the world. So, I will have two categories of self-criticism here. The first is performance. I listened to the podcast. As much as I cringed at hearing my own voice recorded, I'm no stranger to that feeling. And... I did notice that I had a great many uhs and ahs and kind ofs or you knows. These are filler terms. I have had a little bit of training in public speaking. Mostly, I have just done a lot of it for various purposes, political, professional, and so on. I'm sort of in that, uh, there we go again, sort of. I'm in that category where I... I'm just barely good enough at it to get by, but not really to be professional or to sound that great. I also don't really know sound editing, so I could not go in and edit out the uhs and ahs and sort ofs, and I'm not sure that I would want to anyway, because, I don't know, why not have an accurate record of what I did? So, I will try to avoid these filler words allow pauses to take their place, as I was instructed by a very fine public speaking instructor I once had, and especially avoid the deadly sort of, because in some of the things I was talking about, when I would say there is a sort of school of criticism, that weakened my argument. I suppose there's some truth to saying that the Fisher School that I was talking about before, is a sort of school, because it is not as though it is a formal school, or has much in the way of unity to it. But still, I think people could understand that without my adding this compulsive tick. My second category of self-criticism will be a little more serious in terms of the content. I think in my last podcast, specifically when I was talking about the followers of Mark Fisher, of those who were influenced by him, I should have been more specific earlier by who I meant. Who I meant by the Fisher School and by the broader concept of the internet awful school of writing. I myself often get annoyed by critics, podcasters, social media people who make essays or podcasts about sort of vague. There I go again sort of vague sets or milieus 
for their assorted crimes against taste and good sense, often naming either very few names or no names at all. The idea that those people over there are somehow wrong about something and that this wrongness spills out onto them and they want to push back against it. I understand why this is the way that it is. Because you can think of it as a vibes-based criticism, right? That there's this general vibe going around that X, Y, and Z is true. A general aesthetic that you find on your social media feed that you have some sort of bone to pick with. And that is experientially how the internet feels a lot of the time. It seems that given ideas or vibes are just kind of everywhere. And nowhere at the same time you try to pin it down. It's like trying to pin down the fog. But at the same time you feel almost oppressed by hearing the same thing over and over again. Usually, I think if we sat down and analyzed it, it would come down to you were seeing comments and posts that your mind connects together for various reasons, some valid, some less valid that the algorithm accidentally or not pushes and you get this sort of general feeling of uh, all these. So let's give an example. A good, uh, there's the example of the concept of squeecore, which is a critical term invented by the people at the right good podcast, which is a pretty good podcast. I recommend it. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes where they allude to, not allude to, they discuss a trend in sci-fi fantasy for low-stakes emotional conflict, a lack of real viscerality, and a lot of quippage. Think think Joss Whedon, right? Joss Whedon is one of the people that they cite as the author of Squeecore. The idea that it avoids most serious emotions in favor of saccharine nonsense. I think it's a good term. It created a great deal of controversy. And one of the reasons why the hosts of that podcast avoided naming many names, and most of the ones they did were so big that it's so remote, like Joss Whedon, that Joss Whedon isn't going to you know, get in your menchies and try to sick online mobs on you. But if they had mentioned a lot of other names, that might have happened. My understanding is that the space of genre fiction Twitter is pretty toxic that way. So I understand sometimes why you get these vibes-based criticisms. That said, I don't have a Twitter. I am also a cishet white man, and I have observed, no matter what I do, how roundly spicy or rudely expressed my opinions are how little flack i get this includes you know several years as an anti-fascist where obviously i have been you know called all kinds of mean things there have been doxing attempts and what have you but they do not focus on me as much as they focus on any of my comrades or just people in the space who are or present as women or people of color it just seems to be a dynamic, 
you need to really go out of your way as a white guy to take even a, a fraction of the flack. So I think I'm okay naming names. I don't even have a Twitter. I might get one for this podcast. So let me be clear about what I mean by the Fisher School and online awful writing. I mentioned Zero Books. That's a publisher that publishes a lot of leftist books. Primarily, it seems to come down to leftists who can posture as contrarian to the rest of the left. Functionally speaking, that means they publish a good deal of Maoists. Despite, I don't think you could call it a Maoist press at all. A good deal of Maoists, because Maoists still scare people. Well, I don't know if that's why, but that's my guess. And what you could call kind, what you could call post-leftists, people who criticize the left for its supposed or real fecklessness, its failings, particularly failings to do with cultural politics. Much of that post-left writing draws from Mark Fisher, from the idea that being sucked into the spectacle is an inevitable fate, unless you have this very rigorous class politics that also, if you take his Vampire's Castle article at as written, it more or less ignores any other intersecting identities. So I would say the post-left milieu is most of it could be considered part of the Fisher School, and most of it could also be considered part of the Internet Awful line of writing. And the Internet Awful line of writing is much larger than the Fisher School, right? Though Fisher has influenced it, his ideas, his phrases have become memes like capitalist realism. There's numerous verticals dedicated to discussing how awful the internet is and how we're all stuck on it and how nobody can get away from it. I don't think I need to name a ton of names there. In terms of the Zero Books folks, too, I would uh, mention, I did mention Angela Nagel. Uh, ben Burgess, I think we could pretty well say, is in that sort of category, though I believe he's an analytical philosopher, which is quite different from Mark Fisher, who is a continental podcasts. Uh, I used to be, I was almost a day one listener of Chapo Trap House. I knew one of the hosts. I won't mention which one. I'm not trying to be weird about, you know, someone who I was just friends with online, but they, I was friends with them. And so I found about Chapo from there. And I enjoyed listening to it for some number of years. I would say post 2020, they really dived into the internet awful, there is no hope stuff with the second defeat of Bernie, the defeat of the second Bernie Sanders campaign. So I do think there's historical reasons why this comes about. I guess I could have been more specific about what to do rather than get offline. And to just say that really quickly, because I want to get to the book, it's not about touching grass. I would say it's about thinking of some things that aren't suggested to you by 
what you see on your social media feed. It's not to say you should ignore your social media feed. You could probably get a lot of great suggestions for things to do, things to read, things to watch from there. I certainly have. But maybe take some of those things, like take a book that was recommended you by your Twitter stream or your Facebook, if you still have that, I still do, book talk, what have you, and then try to look, if it's a nonfiction book, you can look at the notes, the work cited. If it's a fiction book, you can look on the back and see what other books it's compared to. Preferably, I would say you're better off with an older than a newer. If you want to kind of get out of the space a little. But explore outward in time and in space. Because they say the internet has everything on it. There's some truth to that. But the internet discourse hell space very much does not have everything on it. It does not encompass everything. There are many things, not even special or mundane, sorry, not even special or exciting things, mundane things, or what would have been mundane, that it's simply you you enter that into the space and you'll just get ignored. I speak from personal experience as somebody who reads a lot of books that nobody cares about anymore. You bring them up, I'm not even mad about it. It just, you you might as well be speaking Sumerian because in the internet discourse, hell space, bringing in anything unusual without more institutional heft that I can bring to bear, it's not really going to get you anywhere. But that's a good thing, I would say. I've been reading criticism from the 1990s, the early 90s. Very interesting stuff that obviously I found, at least in part, because of the internet. But it took more digging. It took more looking at the work cited. It took tracing these lines of influence and of discourse outside of the usual paths that I would take if I were guided by to avoid sounds a bit conspiratorial, but by the algorithm. So no, give that a try. Maybe, maybe you already have, and you don't need to hear me talk about it. Anyway, let's talk about this book. Let's talk about Savage Journey. So it probably won't surprise you to know that I'm a big fan of Hunter S. Thompson. Maybe it will surprise you. I don't know. I'm kind of dweeby, dorky, which Hunter S. Thompson was not. Hunter S. Thompson, for those of you unfamiliar with him, was one of the major American journalistic writers of the late 20th century. He's best known for his, I think it's appropriate to call a novel, and so does the author of this book that we're reviewing, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is a fictionalized account of some time that he and a friend of his, Oscar Zeta Acosta, spent in Las Vegas. He was known as, Thompson was known as someone who took things to extremes. He was part of the new journalism, which took more influences from fiction to journalism, tried to make it more literary, often involved, the journalists would involve themselves in the stories in various ways. And Thompson took that further than most, because there were a number of new journalists around. Truman Capote, Tom Wolfe, Joan Didion, so on and so forth. But Thompson did things like Ride with the Hell's Angels, 
for extended periods of time, get beaten by the Hells Angels because uh, I guess they just didn't like him that much. Uh, he was older than the usual counterculture type. He was born, I want to say, in the 30s, maybe the 20s. I should probably know this, but it doesn't really matter. He was a little bit older, but he partook in the San Francisco counterculture scene, did a lot of drugs, had a lot of sex, listened to a lot of rock music, you know, the trifecta, and chronicled its rise and its demise. That's the theme in many respects of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Two refugees from the collapse of the countercultural dream going to Las Vegas to see what America has become in its in it in that dream's wake and its recession. He continued his career for a number of decades. In he killed himself in two thousand five. So what we're going to talk about here is this book by uh, Peter Richardson, who is an academic, I believe a historian, probably should have wrote that down, uh, in California. And Thompson, and this probably isn't a surprise, this isn't news to anybody, but it might be news if you really don't know who Hunter S. Thompson was. He was a larger-than-life figure, and so his life became the emphasis of a lot of the writing about him. Did he actually do all the stuff he said he did? Did he do other stuff they didn't mention? For instance, domestic abuse. The legend of Hunter S. Thompson, in many respects, overshadowed the work. And Peter Richardson promises he's going to talk more about Hunter S. Thompson, the writer, rather than Hunter S. Thompson, the guy. Right? He's not here for the hot goss he's here to discuss how hunter s thompson became the writer he became and created this style not just the new journalism which he was a critical part of but the arguably the further distillation of it called gonzo journalism which is even more literary which is even more intentionally disregarding of the niceties of establishment journalism than the new journalism. Unfortunately, it becomes pretty evident what Richardson means by this pretty quickly in the book, which is using biographizing to explain Hunter S. Thompson's writing. We look at various aspects of Thompson's life, particularly his youth, and his early efforts to become a successful writer. And Richardson goes down the list, tick, 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 and says, okay, this experience, for instance, going out to California to meet Henry Miller, the famous censored writer of sexually explicit modernist novels, and it was his experience there that taught him about the potentiality of spoiled countercultural dreams as a model he was hunter s thompson was a young sort of rake and bully in louisville as a as a teen and that taught him that transgression was a way to get attention and that he could get away with things that others didn't tick 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 child is father of the man and i see this a lot 
I see this in a lot of contemporary historical and especially biographical writing. There's not enough attention paid, I think, here and elsewhere to method, to an effort to see the process of change at work. Because everybody changes over the course of their life. Every, the history of every country, of every social movement, of every city, of every being changes. And there's different types of change. And what the biographical method that Richardson uses here and that other writers use, especially in biographies, in journalistic profiles, and so on, is this child is father to the man. Everything is part of this unitary development. What it reminds me of is the old German romantic idea that the seed contains the entirety of the life, that everything about the tree is in the acorn, and everything is simply an expression of this initial seed, which was a metaphor for ideas or some kind of essence. The essence of the German people was always there in those original bands wandering around the, uh, you know, the, the Tudeburger forest. And it, everything that came after was merely an expression of this seed. I'm not here to tell you that that idea is entirely wrong, that there is not important elements of any given growing thing that are not encoded into its initial beginnings, wherever they might be. I'm not here to tell you that Hunter S. Thompson's youth and early strivings were in any way irrelevant to the writer he became. What I want to tell you is that there's other models of change that one could actually change rather than develop which is to say become the person he was always destined to be, which is what this developmental concept implies. There's a part of me that thinks that so many historians, journalists, and so on don't think that much about concepts like change don't subject it to critical scrutiny. They go with a model that they seem to have adapted by default. In this instance, a biographical model where everything is essentially hardwired into the child from their birth or from their early experiences, and everything is merely an expression of that, uh, kind of by default. And you have to wonder how much of it is a reaction to the faux sophistication of high theory writing. When I found myself trying to put myself in the mindset of the sort of person who writes the history of counterculture or of a journalistic profile of a tech billionaire, right? You see this in a lot of writing about contemporary figures, where they go back to the childhood, they find some rosebud moment or set of childhood oddities 
and then extrapolate from them to explain the adult's behavior. And I think that's just this default that people go to without thinking about it. Nobody really thinks about that there are other ways for people to change than to just become more of what they already were as kids. And that's wild to me once I started thinking about it. And when I put myself in that mindset, what I found was if somebody suggested, hey, think about the dynamics of change and how they might be different, my first thought was reject it, reject that. It's theory, it's navel gazing. He's trying to do a he's trying to do a critical theory on you. And most of these people, to be clear, I don't think I'm not accusing popular historians, popular journalists of being, you know, reflexively anti-theory, of being anti-intellectual necessarily, but I could see, especially given how when many of these people were in school, the presentation of anything like critical theory, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with looking at different modes of personal change, but that the presentation of it was always that it was abstruse, poorly written, little to do with anything. And so the obvious thing to do is to go with what amounts to the common sense of the tribe. And the common sense of the tribe in this era of individualism is the biographical developmental mold. Child becomes the man. So that was something of a disappointment. I'll talk about some of the specifics of of what all that meant in terms of the book. I would also point out point to another overarching problem with Savage Journey, which is I would say that Peterson overlearned the lesson of your Robert E. Lee's of the idea of the that history is not an excuse, right? So when I say the lesson of Robert E. Lee, I meant even when I was growing up, it was common to hear, okay, Robert E. Lee or Thomas Jefferson or any number of these other figures, yes, they were slaveholders, but they were men of their times. It doesn't mean they were bad, which we have rightly walked back in a lot of circles, though it's worth noting some circles are doubling down on it. Hunter S. Thompson did, had, a number of bad behaviors. I think the most important of which is that he was a domestic abuser. His wives and girlfriends, mostly emotional, but occasionally physical abuse. And that's unforgivable. You can't, or rather it's not in our place to forgive. You shouldn't do that. It's wrong no matter when you do it. And I'm not attempting to say it is right because there isn't a context in which these attitudes operate uh, beyond ignorance. Um, oh, sorry, I'm m- messing up here. Uh, I do think there's a context here. I think there's a context for why someone like Lee or Jefferson thought it was acceptable to own slaves, and there was a context to why Hunter S. Thompson thought it was acceptable to slap his wife in front of people. And that context isn't just ignorance, like they've yet to receive our light of morality from the future especially because there were people at the time who knew that slavery was wrong, and there are, were people at the time who knew that hitting your wife was wrong. And you can't put it down to just plain meanness, individual sociopathy or whatever. 
we're using these days. I think we can and should apply our moral standards, but we need to try to understand theirs. But I think to do so would involve a more sophisticated toolkit than most writers bother to develop. And I don't think that was necessarily where Richardson was going. I honestly, there's a little part of me that thinks that Richardson was hedging. Richardson is clearly an admirer of Thompson, but he knows that Thompson is always on the threshold of cancellation. It doesn't seem that they've really, the internet cancellation people, and there I am being talking about a smog again, but if there's anybody who deserves to be talked about that way, uh, the internet cancellation people I don't think have really come for Thompson. If nothing else, the fact that he's dead probably helps. But he did do some pretty bad stuff that deserves to be part of the conversation and that, according to some standards of literary merit, means that he no longer has it because he did these bad things. I don't agree with that, as you could probably tell. But going forward, I, I do think that Richardson was trying to cover himself on those grounds. You see, and I also want to be more in the spirit of naming names, other uh, biographies that partake of this child is the spirit of the man stuff. And among other things, just become very tedious because it's like, oh, okay, well, here's the, here's that theme again, that theme from when they were a kid. Here's Hunter S. Thompson pushing people's buttons because he learned to be like a transgressive little shit from being part of the decaying Louisville aristocracy. Same thing, uh, Margaret Burns' biography of Ayn Rand, I would say uh, Jonathan Sperber's biography of Karl Marx, Mark Shields' biography of Kurt Vonnegut. Those are all ones I read recently where this runs rampant. Among other things, like I said, it becomes tedious and the analysis is weak. Ron Chernow does more in the way of archival research than any of those shows more context, but his biography of Hamilton, pretty similar, right? It was Hamilton's daddy issues and insecurity over his poverty that led him both his greatness and his tragedy. And it's just not good folks. We can do better. There are counterexamples in uh, biographical writing, I'd like to call out The Power Broker by uh, about Robert Moses by Robert Caro. Uh, very good work, even if you don't entirely agree with some of the conclusions. Jack Beatty's The Rascal King, Fawn Brody's biographies, both of Thaddeus Stevens and especially No Man Knows My History about the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith. But you don't see any of that in or you see very little of it in Savage Journey. What you see is in his attempts, Richardson's attempts to nail down what led to the creation of Gonzo is essentially the application of these early influences flowering outward into what amounts to a posture, that's part of the problem of this book, that at the end of the day, Richardson accepts, probably other than him being a wife beater, the most damning criticism of Hunter S. Thompson, which is that he was a posturer. He was somebody who 
more than his writing, defined this posture of the outlaw journalist. They don't give a fuck, hard drinking, hard drugging, going out there doing crazy things, saying crazy shit to people. Persona, which is, again, other than his record of domestic abuse and kind of fucking up his kid, as well as hurting his uh, wives and girlfriends, is probably the worst thing that Thompson contributed. You have a lot of fewer now, but I've been reading, like I said, a lot of criticism from the 90s and journalism from the 90s, and you had a fair number of people who thought of themselves as these Hunter S. Thompson types who take the posture but don't have much substance. And I think that's very, that's all the way round wrong. I think that the core of Thompson's work, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72, about the campaign, the the McGovern-Nixon presidential campaign, Hell's Angels, and much of his journalistic work collected in works like The Great Shark Hunt, they have a lot of substance. They're more substance and style. The style is also impeccable, or at least fascinating, even if you could find stuff to peck at. But Richardson gives that short shrift. He acknowledges his accomplishments in those veins, but at the end of the day, he's more interested in the Thompson persona, which is especially rough because you're sending a not especially funny guy to review the work of a humorous person. Humor, notoriously hard to analyze. Uh, the old criticism is the best way to kill a joke is to explain it. But you'd also kind of figure that in a biography, you're not trying to be funny. So would killing the joke and making it not funny be that much of a problem? I don't see why it would be. But, you know, humor has this vaguely sacred status in Anglo-American culture where you're almost not supposed to dissect it, even if it's not your job to be funny because you don't want to break up the funny. Nobody comes out and says that, but I have noticed that nobody wants to be the officious school principal type dissecting the cut-ups and saying, here is where you sinned. Here is where we're going to send you to detention for. You said XYZ naughty word. I don't think you have to do that in order to understand comedy. Even if you do accept, you won't necessarily be funny when you're analyzing it. It makes me think of nothing so much as the BBC office where David Brent puts so much of his life into being funny and he fails, but it defines his life. It's, it's the one thing that's sacred to him. In any event, what you have here in, large parts of the book are dedicated to this. It was baffling and in some cases deeply annoying as I was going through this book of Richardson going over Hunter S. Thompson's letters to his editors, to his friends, to writers he admired, and going over them line by line in some instances. And Hunter S. Thompson would make outlandish threats. He would make these ridiculous insults. You know, the kind of lines that you would hear in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I knew you were a fed from the beginning. Who are these goddamned animals? Uh, Et cetera, et cetera, which are funny. They're, and obviously comedic. Hunter S. Thompson wasn't going to go 
anywhere and beat people up to, you know, secure uh, a magazine article getting edited the way he wanted it to. It was obvious hyperbole. Everybody knew that. I think at the time, like maybe the hyperbole was also a power move. It often is. But you should get that he didn't mean it literally. It's really, it's really tough. Um, Also, the stuff in the letters, which includes more in the way of homophobic and sexist and racist language, is also taken as part of the real Hunter S. Thompson and the very, if nothing else, the very real steps he took to fight racism as it arose around him and as it metastasized into this dog whistle that could propel people like Nixon and Reagan to office, that's not treated as part of the essential Thompson, right? And I don't get why that is, other than maybe this developmental concept that you always are the product of the seed in that, you know, Hunter S. Thompson came from a pretty racist environment. I mean, most Americans do, but particularly pre-World War II Louisville. And he did use a lot of language he shouldn't have, but he also was the only one willing to go up to Sonny Barger, the Hell's Angels chief, and say, why do you use swastikas? If you say it's just to scare people, why not use a hammer and sickle? He embraced people like Ron Dellums and Shirley Chisholm. He called out racism before calling it out was that much of a thing. I'm not saying all of his racial views were necessarily enlightened, but why is his evidence of his intentional, thoughtful change, which I think this indicates the fact that he went from being willing to throw the N-word around to having this more advanced critique of racism, why why would we ignore the part or downplay the parts where he changed himself rather than emphasize the parts that are supposedly just this continuation of essentially his childhood? And we see that not just here, but in those other biographies I mentioned. It's like the metaphor of the seed. Yes, there's a seed, and that's important to how the tree will grow. But there's also soil. There's also rain. There's the climate. There's the animals. There's numerous other factors. And, hey, uh, people aren't oak trees. (laughs) People have minds, brains which they can use to analyze their situations and change. Why can't we take that more seriously in our biographies? It's worth noting that the biographies I alluded to as being pretty good ones, like The Power Broker and No Man Knows My History, those are all pretty old. Those are all over 50 years old. Uh, All this is making it sound like Richardson doesn't like Thompson, and I think there might be some resentment there, but... More, moreover, I do think that he is a fan, so to speak, because looking at Richardson's work more broadly, for instance, he wrote a biography of Carrie McWilliams, the great editor of The Nation, and who wrote a lot about California. He also wrote a book about the Grateful Dead, 
and how they were this specifically California proponents of a specifically California vision. And he cites these three concepts that the Grateful Dead and its fandom got across and organized around uh, community, ecstasy, and mobility. And I think that, I mean, Richardson says outright that he sees Thompson as essentially a California writer, that he was a product of the particular concatenation of influences present, particularly in the Bay Area of California in the post-World War II period, though he also did important work in Los Angeles with the Brown Buffalo uh, leader, Oscar Zeta Acosta. He lived most of his life outside of Aspen, Colorado, but that he, the idea that Thompson was a proponent of a specifically California dream, which I actually think is one of the stronger claims that Richardson makes. I think there's a lot to back that. That said, and as again, Richardson does point out, this book isn't, and I want to point out this, I have a lot of problems with this book, but it's not completely useless. I don't think Richardson's some dummy, but if Thompson was also a believer in the a life based on ecstasy, mobility, and community, I think he meant it in a very different way from the Grateful Dead, and specifically very different from how future generations would receive the countercultural dream in general. In essence, I think that Thompson wanted a counterculture with teeth. I think Thompson, along with being a child of California, is also a child of the 20th century, a child of ideological conflict, right? He might not have been in line to join, you know, the Communist Party or, for that matter, the Nazi Party, but I think he understood conflicts over value and power and that things like ecstatic drug experience, mobility, and community were things that would be fought over and that would be used to fight in a conflict over how to create a system worth having and a life worth living within that system. Richardson, here I disagree with him some, alludes to Thompson is a believer in a kind of Jeffersonian yeoman type dream where everybody gets their little plot of land and can do as they please on it, as Thompson was wont to do with his plot of land, shooting off guns while extremely drunk, what have you. I think there's some truth to that, but I think that they were actually aiming for something different. And at the end of the day, there were actually very few counterculturalists quite like Thompson. I think a lot of people thought they wanted to push things further, but they didn't think about it very seriously, and they didn't have Thompson's intellectual coherence, or at least the intellectual coherence that he had for much of his life, or his courage. Essentially, I think that Hunter S. Thompson was, for better and for worse, a strong personality with also some fatal weaknesses. And I think you could see this in the way that Hunter S. Thompson interacted with some of his uh, editors and interlocutors. I think part of the tragedy of Hunter S. Thompson, to the extent there is one, is that it was Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone that defined much of his literary legacy. Because 
as Thompson got older and his work became less focused, uh, Richardson blames Thompson for essentially blowing off editing. And he relates many, many stories of Thompson blowing assignments, of him sending outlandish threats and insults to editors, just generally being a mess. And that goes along with what most people agree is a general decline in his quality of work in the late 70s through the 80s, 90s, until his death. Now, I... I actually think even less good Hunter S. Thompson material is better than much material out there, but I do think they're right. His work did get less focused. And I think that was down to a co-op, a bad vicious cycle between Thompson's egotism and his desire for freedom and the weakness of his editors. I think if he had been being edited by, say, Carrie McWilliams, who's the one who gave him the Hells Angels assignment in the beginning, or Warren Hinkle from Ramparts, who encouraged him to write his early Gonzo pieces, who are strong editors with real visions and real politics, that they could have provided a counterpoint to Hunter S. Thompson. They could have, you know, almost a dialectic between them to produce better work. But instead, Hunter S. Thompson became this product that Jan Wenner sold. And obviously, much of his better work came out in Jan Wenner's Rolling Stone. I'm not denying that. Giving him a degree of freedom was a good thing. But at the end of the day, these weaker counterculturalists, the ones who truly did think of it as a lifestyle to be chosen among others rather than a really radical confrontation with the system as it exists, that it was inevitable that they were going to just pack it. They were going to give Thompson enough rope to hang himself with, at least as a writer. What would a really strong counterculture have looked like? And, you know, I really don't know. I've been reading about it for a long time. I don't claim to be an expert on the history of the counterculture. Is it, there is a pretty persuasive argument that comes from Tom Frank, among others, that the counterculture was, as they say now, always already compromised by capitalism. I do think that it's possible to take things that are compromised and use them as weapons, even with their compromises. It's possible to... You're not going to have perfect weapons, perfect strategies. I actually look to Hunter S. Thompson in the Freak Power campaigns in Aspen as a potential way forward for the counterculture if they took things like that a little more seriously. Or if SDS didn't break apart into these various strat- various groups that all had kind of mediocre or downright awful strategies. The progressive labor who had the somewhat excusable but ultimately not very good strategy of trying to pretend to be proletarians versus weatherman who had the god-awful and possibly agent provocateur inspired strategy of just blowing stuff up i think thompson whatever else you want to say about him was a serious person not always a literal person not always a a humorous person, but he was a person to to borrow from that motto I discussed last time, who played seriously. 
he wanted there to be stakes to what he did, not just in terms of his problem gambling, but in terms of his writing. And you don't get as much of that as I think we deserve out of a book that purports to tell us the real story of Gonzo. I guess in conclusion, there is such a thing I think as talent in this world. And talent, I think, has rights. It doesn't have the right to do whatever it wants. It doesn't excuse you from morality. Hunter S. Thompson was an asshole for hitting his wife. But I think when you're attempting to discuss the literary perspective, then it's not that there aren't any rules for the talented, that you reach this status and you can't lose it. But I do think the rules are a little bit different, and I think it's worth critical examination of how talent works, how it's developed, different metaphors and different mechanics than the ones we seemingly come prepackaged with and use without thinking. What would it mean to actually be able to, in part, not in whole, make yourself? Uh, you know, I think that's worth thinking about, especially in the case of Thompson, but in general about this biographical writing, the different ways in which people are made by themselves and by circumstances, rather than treating them like little little bundles of narrative coherence that get uh, thrown into the soil and then grow up to be the thing they always already were. Anyway, that's that's me for now. I'll be back in a couple weeks. Uh, please uh, subscribe to Melendi Avenue Review, which I'll put down. If for, at the five dollar level, you can for five dollars a month or fifty a year, you'll get all of the podcasts. Because starting with podcast number three, the odd number podcasts will only be available to subscribers. So if you want to keep listening, you better pony up. Also, there's other benefits that come with it, but you can see all that on my Substack page. Meanwhile, I guess the main thing I would ask you to do would be even to just share it with one friend. If you have a friend who's a Hunter S. Thompson fan or a literary criticism fan, just uh, send it their way. See what they think. Anyway, that's it for me. Keep reading. Have a good one.